Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. It's a happy Tuesday to each and every one of you out there. And let's just take a moment and better ourselves. Let's reflect and let's become aware with the words of wisdom from the great philosopher George Carlin. Just because you got the monkey off your back doesn't mean the circus has left town. Now, I know that means something to many of you out there. And just remember, while the circus is in town, try to enjoy it while you can. But eventually, the circus does leave town. All right, folks, now let's get this party started on a Tuesday. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. Testing, testing, testing. I think we should be pretty good here. So go ahead and state your name and who you are with. Title for a mic level check. Go ahead in three, two, one. My name is Robert McKaylee, and I am the de facto head of Mystic Media over at Bismarck State College. And uh, I've served as that for the past two years, and I'm about to finish my tenure there. All right. What is Mystic Productions. What is the name of that again? Mystic, Mystic Media. Mystic Media. Yeah. I knew it was alliteration, but I drew a blank quick. And here we are outside of the giant gorilla, outside of the Williston Basin Petroleum Conference. And I'm doing kind of a quick makeshift, what do we call this? Putting, you know, duct tape together on an interview, you know, type of a thing. And But well, that's okay. That's how, that's how we do it, you know. It's uh, changing our oil while going 90 miles down the interstate. But anyway... Um, forgot why I was even going off on that little thing. Anyway, I don't have my notepad with. I don't, didn't bring a pen and paper, and so I didn't get a business card. You don't have business cards, do you? No, unfortunately, I don't. Okay, and so that's why I could not remember Mystic Media. That was a very long explanation, and I'm sure I bored a lot of people. So let's find out more about Mystic Media. How long have you guys been around, and what do you guys do? So we've been around as long as probably the Mystician newspaper has existed at Bismarck State College. Back when it was Bismarck Junior College, the Mystician started somewhere, if I remember correctly, uh, in the late 50s and the early 60s. And then from there, it just expanded also out to radio as well as uh, news broadcasting slash variety show kind of style stuff. And that's probably where we're best at. It's uh, just giving people a technical education here in North Dakota about what they should do if they want to go into news, journalism, television, or even print news still. You know, I'm with the crude life, so obviously the name is pretty, pretty, uh, well, what's the word? Transparent. Let's just call it that. It's, we're not hiding what we are and what we're about. Uh, at the same time, we have real honest conversations because, listen, at the end of the day, 96% of what we use on a daily basis involves fossil fuels. The media plays a big role in telling the story. Um, I don't know how old you are, but you know, you, you, you're in your mid-20s, it looks like. So uh, just talk to me a little bit about the relationship between oil and gas and media and you and your friends and just kind of how you were brought up with it. I'll give you an example. When I started The Crude Life, I actually started to investigate against oil and gas, actually. I had contracts uh, verbal with the New York Times and a few other bigger publications. So I went out to the Bakken as a method journalist, which I am. 
So when I went sky to do an article on skydiving, I'd actually skydive. To you know, do I I try to do the things before I'd write a story on it, right? Well, I went out to the Bach and embedded myself for two weeks out there, and boy, my tune changed really quickly. I saw them as a uh, bringer of opportunity as a solver of problems. Now they're not batting a thousand, but I come from agriculture, so agriculture's got its its demons too. We all do. But at the end of the day, do we want to get fed? Do we want to have our lights on? So we want to make it a better place. And in my my opinion, I've seen the oil and gas industry have a very good body of work trying to do that. Again, are they batting a thousand? No, few do. So that's my example of kind of the way the media shaped me. Because when I grew up, oil and gas was kind of not a very positive thing. And I was kind of that tail end or beginning end of it. Your generation, totally different upbringing on it. So I just wanted to preface it like that. And if it's too heavy of a conversation, that's cool too. We can bypass that. But I just thought I'd start with that. Well, I think, yeah, no, I think these conversations need to be had. Um, I'd say my relationship is somewhat complicated. Um, On one hand, you have the very utopian ideas of a much brighter future that doesn't rely on the old ways. But at the same time, the old ways are so deeply entrenched in us uh, that it's very hard to kind of separate ourselves from them. So I, for context as well, I came to North Dakota at the beginning of the gas boom for my first try around here at college uh, up on the hill over in uh, here in Bismarck and I was there during the entirety of the oil boom its decline here in North Dakota during back in what 2016 I'd say and then also uh, the Standing Rock protests as well I believe I was um, a sophomore at that time and so I'd say I definitely have a very interesting uh, idea of how the oil industry works out here because honestly some people do need jobs and need food absolutely but there's other parts of me that recognize that labor need be compensated and that people uh i don't often feel that some people get their fair shake especially in terms of like the structure of a large oil company sometimes that's that's my that's probably my take on it <laughs> that's the first time i've heard that take actually that's very interesting and i'm i'm proud of you for bringing that up and having that perspective because i know exactly what you're talking about yeah. and i've really never heard it like that before most people get into the climate change and get into that the, i call it the low hanging fruit Yours is a little bit layered and complex, so good for you for bringing that up. Do you guys address these complex issues at your media production company, or the media, what do you call it, the uh, education wing of the media, what? Yeah, so uh, basically we're just a mass communications department that has marketed ourselves really, really well at this point, and has uh, created something that, like, I mean, our our stuff has increased tenfold, but yes, we do have these conversations. Um, On occasion, we still talk about, like, the last, oh, even when I worked, like before I returned back to college, when I worked in car rentals, we, everyone still talks about Standing Rock and stuff. Like it only happened a few years ago. And obviously it's still a point that is brought up often. And also we have a lot of journalists that come in and talk to us who were reporting at that time, including uh, Mike McCleary, who's uh, with the Bismarck Tribune. And he showed us his like whole photo portfolio of like his two days spent out there, both inside of like, you know, the protesting camp and also like on the front lines. And it's shocking to see. And it brings up some very interesting conversations about media ethics. Like, what do we take pictures when people expressly tell us not to? How 
how do we photograph the police, how do we photograph protesters, what story do we tell when we tell a story in pictures and words? Media ethics becomes very interesting because in order to tell both sides of the story, you got to understand there's more than both sides of the story. There's three, four, five, six sides of the story, and that's where it becomes very complicated. And people like to live in a simple world, so fortunately it seemed like the media has gone down to one polarity now. It's like they give you one point of view instead of offering multiple things. Here on The Crude Life, we interviewed uh, multiple people on the Standing Rock, for example. Tony Bender was one of the uh, examples. He yes. was he was there. I think he wrote a book on it eventually. He but Yeah, he was very instrumental with the communication part of things. And so... So I was, I'm in Fargo, and at that time, uh, I was not able to go there. I went there, but I wasn't able to spend the amount of time that McCleary or Tony Bender, or people who live here, you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, t- Tony Bender was a great asset for us at The Crude Life to offer us boots on the ground, you know, uh, real. But And he li- comes from a democratic side of the aisle yeah. and so for us it was very interesting because for I don't care what side of the aisle you're on if you're actually reporting what you see that's that's what's going on and then we had Erin Schrodon uh, she got shot by yes. the by the police with the rubber bullets and so we interviewed her to bring her side to the deal we we got some bad emails on that one because people were saying we shouldn't have gave her the time of day everything else and i'm oh. thinking are you kidding me a journalist goes to cover something they get shot by rubber bullets that should be front page news in my mind what do you think about that I, I think, that, like, so there has been so much uh, polarity around, like, especially the way that we talk about news and news media to the point where some people just outright don't believe journalism in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we obviously bring our biases to the table and we try to separate ourselves as much as possible and be factual. Like, I have my opinions. I have my opinions on labor. I just express those. But something that I think also needs to be addressed is... In theory, we are supposed to be separating ourselves. And also, I, I know exactly what report you're talking about and everything, um, because it was big news, uh, at least to me, because I'm like, what is this? That journalists are getting shot by rubber bullets? And then we continue to see that trend, unfor- unfortunately. And I just think, like, hey, when something happens to a person and they have evidence, maybe we should give them the time of day. That we should. No, I agree. And so I'm glad that you're recognizing these things and being able to identify the layers behind stories. Sometimes I think that, like I come from the magazine world where you have to have layers. Otherwise, you know, you have a very difficult time because that's just the way the magazine industry was built. And so sometimes I think that works against me in today's world because people, you know, people like the easy button, you know. And well, I always bring up the weather as an example. The weather is very complicated. It's probably one of the most complicated things that we could ever try to understand. Yet we're okay with, and we want, somebody just to stand up on a video screen and say, it's going to be sunny today. That's about as simplified as you can get of one of the most complicated things out there in the universe, right? So people like easy. But um, what are you teaching your kids? Are, are you teaching them facts? Are you teaching them ethics? Are you just teaching them clickbait? Talk to me about, you know, kind of what's going on in the world of journalism, how you're educating the kids today. 
So fun fact, I'm not actually a teacher at all. Uh, I am the student head of the productions where I was. I'm actually just graduating tomorrow. Um, and so, but I do assume a certain leadership role. And so do all the other amazing people, all the amazing educators uh, that work with the, uh, that work to make sure that we get the proper education. So yeah, we do have like a whole dedicated media ethics class actually. Um, when I have a story that sometimes seems a too biased my uh, advisor she says no let's let's take another look at this okay let's let's reword some things let's make sure that like you know we keep this as straight to news as possible and we try to emulate that in our newspaper uh our mysticast which is uh you can look up on youtube uh has become definitely much more variety show which i don't think is bad because creativity is a part of media and something that should be encouraged absolutely and then uh, in the radio station you know we just try to be entertaining so you have all facets from like the factual stuff to also just what makes good entertainment and also how do you make good entertainment when you point a camera or when you turn on the microphone a little embarrassed here because you did mention you were a student and i forgot through the interview because you carry yourself so well you've got a bright future ahead of you you i mean i the way the way you spoke i assumed you were just an instructor or an advisor i thought you were as like a student advisor like an advisor to the whole thing but uh I'm glad that you were able to understand the question and transition it into the proper context. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much for being professional. And I apologize for those listeners out there to say, does he even listen to his guests? <laughs> so anyway, It happens, folks. It happens. So I It does. It happens. And like I said, I didn't bring my notepad with, so I'm going off memory here. But I'm glad to see that uh, you've got some a good head on your shoulders, that Bismarck is, is teaching some ethics and making you redo and rethink and offering some layers to the thought. What's next for you? What, what, what do you plan on doing? Well, I actually have developed quite a love for sports production over time. Um, that was part of like my internship and I worked for the school as a sports director essentially like hey get me these shots follow this on camera here it's time to do an instant replay stuff like that and I think the future looks bright for that but I definitely am leaning much more towards a uh, podcast production in particular um, I have a certain love uh, this is getting a little personal but I have a love for horror especially and I want to explore um, horror fiction in more depths as best as I can because I think we can learn a lot from it as well so that's just a personal pet project of mine hey man that's okay my favorite movie is Friday the 13th I'm a huge Heck Jason yeah. Voorhees fan Heck so yeah. growing up as a kid I loved horror movies and now there's no nothing beats a nice Friday Saturday night horror movie it's just I don't know what it is but I'm, I'm the same way man I love horror movies yeah, I, I, I love them. Uh, I grew up on games like Resident Evil. I grew up on movies like, well, I'd say my first horror movie was Jurassic Park, possibly, and I watched that way too young for, like, come on, it's scary when you're a kid. Like, when you're a five-year-old kid watching Jurassic Park, but you can't look away because cool dinosaurs, and then from there just blossomed into a love from Friday the 13th, like you said, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Hellraiser, stuff like that. By the way, Jurassic Park is probably scarier than Friday the 13th. It's Friday the 13th is just fun, campy horror. It is. Jurassic Park is like, that shit could happen. 
the ethics <laughs> of creating life in that Frankensteinian way with no regards for safety is terrifying to me as an adult, especially. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's the real horror behind it. That, that that could actually happen. I don't think a guy coming back from the dead after getting his head cut off 14 times, getting struck by lightning, and that regenerates him with a machete, that ain't happening. Dinosaurs? That could. <laughs> well, the permafrost is is meant is is uh you know it's been thawing out. Who knows what's gonna come out of there? It could have a woolly mammoth come out of there with the DNA that we've got going. But that brings up ethics and journalism. So as we conclude the interview, um, let the oil and gas companies, the the oil and gas industry, just what can they do to connect with your your age group? What what things would you like to see industry to do to connect more with the youth because they need. To well, I'd say first off, if we're going to talk on like the rawest level, I really want to see equitable value towards labor, especially towards the people, the blue collar workers out in oil fields, especially because, you know, any politician can say that. But I'm talking raw. They are the ones doing the absolute labor and I believe they should get a f- real fair shake and especially I think there should be a certain level of transparency like private companies uh, I mean obviously like they have a right to operate and stuff but I believe that if there is more transparency and more of a motive to move towards perhaps more a certain channel where we can find perhaps more meaningful ways to improve the industry rather than keep in the same set mindsets, I think that's what will definitely uh, read more towards my age group in the end. And that's just my opinion. I'm sure there are some with probably uh, who say less and who are a little more extreme, but I, th- I think that's a good stepping stone to getting the conversation really started and conversation does need to happen. Well, I appreciate you coming out to the Williston Basin Petroleum Conference here and having that conversation and I wish you luck and please tell uh, the people back at Bismarck State College anytime that they want to Lean on the crude life. We're more than happy to help out any of the students. If you guys need a voice out to the energy industry for whatever reason, you got a fundraiser or you're happy about what they did or upset about what they did, lean on the crude life and we'll give you a voice anytime, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, sir. The music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com.
The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. It's sponsored in part by Great American Mining monetizes wasted, stranded, and undervalued gas throughout the oil and gas industry by using it as a power generation source for Bitcoin mining. Great American Mining Company brings the market and their expertise to the molecule. Their solutions make producers more efficient and profitable while helping reduce flaring and venting throughout the oil and gas value chain. And if you're a mineral owner, check out how much Bitcoin you could be making right now with your valued gas. Go to GAM.AI. That's Great American Mining, GAM.AI. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. With up and smoke barbecue. Junior Urias on the line with us, a barbecue champion. Is that right? Now you're 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 a champion in some different competitions. I, I want to ask you about how you got into barbecue, and then uh, if you want to transition that into, I know ahead of time. So spoiler alert, folks. He is a barbecue pitmaster champion. So start with the beginning of how you got into barbecue and transition into you know kind of some accolades you've gotten along the way. Sure, sure. You know, I started at a young age. I, uh, you know, I loved cooking and stuff with people. I used to go to uh, barbecue camps in which we would cook for like 600 people a week long every year. And we would do it for seven days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And everything was uh, done over campfires. There was no electricity, no ovens, no uh, nothing like that. The coffee was was uh, cooked over coals, and, and you know we used a lot of Dutch ovens. And anyway, that's kind of where we started. You know, I started going back when I was at least twelve years old, and uh, at least thirty years we did that. And that's kind of where my barbecue expedition started. Then I started doing cookoffs because I enjoyed the sport, and, and people always told me that it was. Uh, but I was good at it, so I ended up continuing the barbecue competition. I started traveling all over, you know, Texas, and then uh, all over the entire United States. 
And uh, we ended up uh, on Barbecue Pitmasters. We were chosen as one of the teams for Barbecue Pitmasters. Uh, we went and uh, did the Barbecue Pitmasters and won the Texas uh, Pitmaster Championship. Wait, you were on uh, Pitmasters, that show that I watch when I go in, in the hotels and that sort of thing on cable? That that show, Barbecue Pitmasters, the uh, reality show? Absolutely. Uh, the, the show was on Destination America, and it is Barbecue Pitmasters. And, yeah, absolutely, we were on it. Uh, it still boggles my mind that we're on it, and we did good, and, you know, it, it's just grown my business I, I chuckled because I had uh, I, I wrote down Myron Mixon uh, Pitmasters I like it is what I got down in my notes and the reason I say that is I got rid of my television in 2007 got rid of my landline in 1997 so I've been like an, an early adapter to new technologies that sort of thing and so when I go on v- vacation or travel for business I, I get into hotel rooms and that's really where I get my television fixing and that sort of thing and I stumbled upon this pit Masters show, and I got to tell you, it was one of my favorite shows because I love the barbecue, and I love the you know like the diners, drive-ins, and dives food network thing, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of that because you have each person really has their own flavor and their own style and their own uh, chemistry, if you will, when it comes to their different meats and everything. So talk to me a little bit about that Pitmasters experience. You know, what, what, what did you cook? What were your sides? Uh, did you get a, get insulted by Myron Mixon? Come on now, to share it. <laughs> you know, it's funny, uh, Jason, we were at San Antonio, Texas at another cook-off. This was on the Friday night. We had my trader set up. We're, we're already cooking for the competition. And I got a call. The call was from the Barbecue Pitmasters uh, auditioning person. And uh, they had asked me if, that I, if I wanted to be on the show, that I needed to be in Florida by Sunday. So I was like, uh, this Sunday? And he goes, yes, this Sunday. Can you make it? I said, Give me your number, I'll call you right back. <laughs> so the first thing I did was uh, I called several people uh, in Florida. It's gonna be based in Florida, so I was thinking, wow, I can't, I can't really get my trailer and everything connected right now and hit Florida to make it on time. Well, I mean, we had the entire, I mean, we're doing an actual cook-off, so we had, I mean, you can only imagine all the stuff spread out and we were just getting ready for the cook-off, so. I said, all right, I I contacted one of my good friends, Blake, in Florida. I knew he was in Florida. I just didn't know how close or where in Florida. So I contacted him. He says, I asked him, hey, dude, I'm going to be on Barbecue Pitmasters. I need to use your smoker. He has a smoker that I uh, used at the the time. So anyways, I asked him, how far are you from from where we're going to film? He goes, we're about four hours. I said, can you do me a favor? Can you bring me the pit by Sunday? I need a Saturday evening. Can you have it there for me? And he says, yeah, I'll make it happen. So that's how that got started. And then, uh, you know, I flew in from San Antonio to Florida. Me and uh, my buddy that helped me out that weekend, his name's Wade McVee. And, you know, we flew in with just a couple of bags and some seasonings. And uh, we ended up winning Barbecue Pit Masters, the Texas uh, episode. And then, uh, 
you know what? Yeah, uh, Myron did give me a lot of hell. Uh, he was making fun of my pulling on in with just a, a bag of uh, seasonings and uh, some knives, and that's it, a few clothes. And what was cool was there was a steak challenge. So the steak challenge consisted of a, uh, it's funny, I went to Walmart before the, steak, the entire cook-off. I went to Walmart to pick up a grill because I thought, man, you know what, we might need the grill for the quick challenge. So I ended up going to Walmart, I picked up a $20 grill. So uh, now, a good thing that I say now is, uh, you know, I basically cooked a $50,000 ribeye on a $20 grill. So, you know, that's, that's one of the highlights of the entire show was cooking a, cooking a $20 steak on a, I mean, a $50,000 steak on a $20 grill. Oh, what a great story. What a great story, I tell you. You know, I, I want to get to the uh, uh, oil and gas connection in just a second, because you've got an in, in interesting story to tell when it comes to your connection with oil and gas. And also, uh, I want to talk about some just some barbecue overview, wood, temperature, time, smoke, water, that sort of thing. Uh, Junior Ureas is on the I'm sorry, Junior Urias on the line with us up in Smoke Barbecue, a pitmaster champion. And I wrote down primitive into technology as you were kind of talking, uh, answering some of the questions. And the reason I did that was when I first got started in the media, I, I started, um, oh, back in, say, the radio days when they actually cut tape and splice together things to do edits and in the magazine world where I was when I was in that as well we had light boards and we would use exacto knives and that sort of thing and it was a very primitive primitive way to do the media and you know I, I did that for a few years and then when we transitioned into the digital age it really gave me an appreciation how to use the digital technology a little bit different I think than a lot of people did you find that going to the barbecue camp and having those primitive barbecue smoke fire elements has really influenced your overall barbecue skills yeah, you know, it really has. You know, I think, you know, a lot of people are used to just smoking and that's all they know how to do. You know, I I, I think for me, grilling was a big part of my upbringing and, and my style of cooking. I think it's a unique way of doing things. You know, I include my uh, grilling also with the smoking. Uh, it's a lot of stuff that... A lot of regular pitmasters can't do, and you know I incorporate both. I think it's a big uh, leap for me to be able to use both, uh, you know, skills. I think they're both different skills, and you know I think I've mastered them pretty well. So now, I, like you said, you know I use them together, and it's, it just makes me a unique individual out there in the cooking world. You know, and the grilling world has gotten pretty. Technological base too, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we're talking. It's it's still time and temperature, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. It, you know, time and temperature, and the, the cuts of meats and stuff like that. Let's talk a little bit about barbecue itself. You know, what, what what style do you do? I mean, you know, a lot of people, they, they, they say their style is the best. And I always say, well, what style works for you? 
Well, you know, when you talk about styles, there's, there's you know, there's all, always the, the Texas style, there's the Memphis style, there's the Kansas City style. Um, you know, even California's got its own style. But, you know, over the years, like I was saying, yeah, I've been to cook-offs and, and two or three different organizations all over the United States and pick up each, you know, trait of each organization. And I kind of incorporated it all into one. And using my unique style, I, I use it. There's, I really don't have a Texas style, really, so to speak. So, you know, I think that makes it more universal for me and kind of unique for me to be able to use all the different styles and put it together. Do you have a standard type of wood? Do you use a charcoal? Well, it, it all depends on what we're cooking, Jason, but uh, the majority of the time we use a pecan and uh, mesquite when I do my briskets. When we do steaks, we use uh, some lump charcoal and also mesquite. Uh, you know, when I do pork, I sometimes like using fruit wood with charcoal. I'll use fruit wood, you know, being peach and sometimes cherry. I think it imparts a good flavor in the pork. You know, when we do ribs also, I always use, uh, you know, some pecan and some peach. Or, or, you know, any fruit wood will work good with pork. So that's kind of the way we do it and, and the style that I use. How about when it comes to uh, time and temperature? Are you low and slow, or do you like to put a little heat and, and uh, rush to it? Well, once again, you know, I, I impart both techniques into the way I cook things. Uh, of course, you know, the brisket, I like doing low and slow. Red, I use two methods. Uh, I do the low and slow, and then I go to hot fast to finish it off. You know, even even on um, steaks, I like I like to do them hot and fast, and I slow down the temperature, and I, I finish them off to a, a good internal medium well, you know. It, it just really depends on the meat that I'm cooking and, and the style that I'm doing it for, uh, you know, grilling versus smoking. There's there's a lot of ways of doing it, but uh, for the most part, that's the way I, I keep it. Do you have any opinions on uh, marinades and, and, and dry rubs before, after, saucing it before and after, and, you know, spraying it with apple juice, th- those sort of things, uh, you know, the, the um, enhancers, if you will. Do you got any uh, opinion or comments when it comes to those? You know, there's two different ways of doing it. Uh, there's the cook-off mode, a cook-off way of doing it, and then there's, there's the restaurant style, which, you know, I, I use them both. For cook-offs, of course, you want to impart the most flavor into the meat. Uh, not only just the flavor, but different flavors. So, you know, for example, on, on ribs, what I like doing is I'll brine my ribs the night before. After I've got them trimmed, I'll, I'll use a salt, water, and, and vinegar brine for my ribs. So I'll soak them overnight, and then that morning I'll prep it. I'll get my seasonings and stuff like that out, and and we do the cook. Uh, so, you know, you, you're wanting to add multiple flavors to the meat as much as you can, just for the judges and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, for my restaurant, I, I try to keep it simple. You know, simple is sometimes the best. And quite honestly, I, I would eat my restaurant rib over my cook-off rib any day. 
How about when it comes to sides? Uh, do you have a signature side? Do you have? Uh, does it vary on the seasonal part of things? Um, both, maybe you know, when, when you're doing a backyard barbecue, what do you recommend? Or maybe when you're doing a catering, or maybe during a competition. How about talk to me about sides? Yeah, there's, there's, you know, when we do, it's really all the catering side when we do sides. Uh, you know, we we normally do like a potato salad. That's a mustard-based potato salad. We do uh, uh, coleslaw, a sweet slaw with a uh, little bit of heat. And then we also do uh, Junior's uh, famous beans. We, we do some pinto beans, we sell some more knife. And then we add some jalapeno and some of our in-house made sausage with uh, some onion. And we just let that just sit uh, and slow cook for about two, three hours. And wow, it's just, you know, it's just amazing. But uh, those are some of the signs that we do currently. How about uh, sauce? Do you make your own sauce? We make our own sauce for, for my catering business. We make our own sauce. We make it fresh. We make it daily. Uh, you know, it's a vinegar uh, and tomato based sauce, you know, with a little bit of heat. Once again, you know, I'm, I try to import a lot of the flavors from uh, Kansas City, some of the Carolina because of the vinegars, and then, of course, the the Texas with with the spice. So I incorporate all of them to come up with a, a unique sauce unique to us and to our business. And it accommodates our brisket, our ribs, and our sausages. And it just uh, goes very well with everything we cook. Barbecue uh, Pitmaster Champion Junior Urias on the line with us talking about uh, uh, barbecue and tips and uh, a few other items to note. And now we're going to transition into the world of barbecue and oil and gas because those two go together so well. I mean, you've got guys at, uh, at drill sites, you know, grilling, and then you've got big company uh, grill sessions and even community ones. Uh, you know, uh, crude, uh, I was thinking about the Bakken barbecue, for example. Talk to me a little bit about your connection when it comes to uh, oil and gas and, and kind of the, the whole barbecue connection generally with oil and gas as well sure you know uh like i said i started uh, cooking in competitions and stuff like that and i think it's brought me to where i'm at today in my catering business you know i've, I've created the craft barbecue what we call it and you know a lot of the customers love it the oil and gas in my area is real big you know we're here in midland texas and it is oil and gas that's all it is uh and, you know, we we are a big company as far as catering. We cater to all the majority of the big oil field names. And we're very known for uh, the quality, high catering business that uh, does very well with the barbecues and steaks and stuff like that. We, you know, it's, it's honestly built my business to where it is now, you know. The oil, the oil field and the oil field companies around this area has, has been good to me, and uh, we've been good to them. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, that's that's where I'm at now as far as moving on to the restaurant. That's how we're getting built, and we're really doing it because, you know, there's a lot of companies and stuff that uh, want us to go ahead and build a restaurant, and we're doing it. So... I think it's a huge impact, you know, for us to be part of the whole business and oil and gas in this area. And, you know, it's brought my business to where it is today. 
Does the oil and gas industry ever ask for anything um, off menu, I guess, or do they pretty much just do the uh, regular catering menu? Absolutely, we do. You know, uh, we do the traditional, you know, our brisket ribs, chicken, sausage. Uh, you know, we, we do that as a, as a normal catering, I would call it. You know, we also do steaks. We don't do steaks for everyone, but if they really want us to do steaks, um, we do steaks. We do inch and a half ribeyes, and I'm telling you, they just come out phenomenal. They're just just as good as my barbecue. You know, our recipes are good, so we do steaks also, uh, steaks and shrimp. And when we do corporate companies parties, we do. Uh, Sometimes we get the request to do whole hogs. So we also do whole hogs. That's a, that's a big request that we get. And, uh, you know, I think that might be a little, I, I think that's about where we limit it because we want to keep everything, uh, we, we just don't want to, sometimes we get asked to do Mexican food and stuff like that, but, but we really try to stick with our barbecue and, and our whole hogs and our traditional menu and steaks. How about uh, outside of oil and gas? Uh, restaurants you mentioned, also I wrote down sauces. Uh, are you um, selling, distributing sauces anywhere? And uh, what, uh, I guess, is your restaurant in operation now? Is it being constructed? Talk to me about your restaurant and sauces. Well, the, the sauces, I've, actually the sauces, I've created a seasoning called Junior's Rubber Grub. It's been on the market for over 10 years, you know, I created it for, actually I came across for my cook-offs. So I created it, and now um, that's that's what created my sauce as well. So, you know, our, our seasoning's been used by teams all over the United States, and then now some in foreign countries are using it and they're winning with it on a daily basis. So, you know, the, really, honestly, my, my business became created because of my seasonings. That's how I started my entire business. So uh, Junior's Rubber Grub is a big impact to my business, and it's kind of how it was started. For the next couple years, that's what we want to keep on pushing. So we'll see how it goes. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com. Just remember your time. Crude Life, the most trusted voice in energy. On the phone, talking with us today, Chairman Christy Craddock of the Texas Railroad Commission. We are the oil and gas regulator, but we do pipelines and pipeline safety inspections for the state of Texas. We have roughly 470,000 miles of interstate and intrastate pipelines in Texas, and roughly another 500,000 miles of gas utilities. We have a lot of pipes in Texas. We're the largest pipe state by a sixth. 
it's an important part of what goes on in the state and safety is is really important obviously to all of us absolutely you know the, the oil and gas industry has always been environmentally focused i mean uh the president biden's administration that this is obama biden 2.0 plus and the rate at which we've seen the executive orders flying off the president's desk is taking America back, taking jobs back, and putting us in a detrimental position. But as the attorneys general for a number of states, we are pushing back. Um, from the Department of Transportation, that Permian, the Permian Basin has some of the um, most deadly roads of anywhere in the country. We average a fatality per day. That is absolutely unacceptable, and we need to do better. Uh, we just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. Welcome back to the Crude Line. Play hard, work hard. I am Sean Forbes with TeamForbes.com and OGDirectory.com. Jason Spies is my co-host today. I went out there on my first rig move, and I was like, wow, I'm permitting all these loads, getting trucks going, load go, and I don't even know what half the stuff was. So when I finally got to go on the rig, I was like, wow, I was amazed. I was truly amazed of how this process is. No, I wasn't expecting any olive branch at all. Uh, the Democrat Party has decided that they don't like oil and natural gas, and uh, they were clear that they're going to go after us. I, I don't think that's any surprise. My name is Jenica, and today we get to talk with Amy Andrzak of the Interstate Natural Gas Association of America. Amy is the president and CEO. How are you doing today? I would say my my interest in this arena started more from an interest in politics and advocacy, more so than an interest specifically in the energy industry. Well, the first the, the first advice that I that I want to give is, ladies, put your clothes on, okay? If you want to be taken seriously, put your clothes on, which that's a whole other podcast topic. It's a funny thing when I think sometimes it's just really ironic. I'll, I would be used to pull into the office and I would see some of my colleagues driving electric cars and things like that. And I'm like, how do you work for a large oil and gas company? <laughs> you pull in an electric car. So, I mean, even us, I mean, even in our, in our circles, we can see that things are changing. Actually, you are on the money. Back in 2014 and 15, when we first started approaching our management team at our reasoning for wanting to engage in ESG is that we had great stories to tell. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> Play hard, work hard. Now let's work hard. Well, I was tears old when John Lennon died. Well, I was 23 when George said goodbye Yeah, next go I think it's Paul I say And then there'll be only Ringo to play It's absolutely naive to think that we can solve the problem by cutting capital off from the industry that's producing the world's energy. We need to drive capital towards this industry so that we can raise the amount of R&D that's going on in this industry so that we can solve those problems. As I said before, uh, we've hit the geologic jackpot in North Dakota. Uh, not only with our billions of barrels of oil, our 800 years of lignite supply, and our productive soil, but we also have hit the geologic jackpot with our potential to sequester CO2. The estimates we have today 
indicate that we have the capacity to store over 250 billion tons of CO2. That's enough to sequester North Dakota's annual production of CO2 for 8,400 years. We've got things like Project Tundra, which we know will be online later this decade. Uh, Coal Creek carbon storage, best management practices in agriculture. That's going to be huge. 90% of North Dakota is either a farm or a ranch, and we can get carbon stored in our soil and in our rangeland. Uh, we can store carbon from ethanol plants. Summit Carbon Solutions Projects are working on this, and we know that we've got people working on enhanced coral recovery. Talked to Denbury last night. Uh, they're, they're bringing CO2 into the state to do enhanced oil recovery in the Bowman area. They will put a ton of CO2 down hole for every barrel that comes out, and they could be producing carbon negative oil. Welcome to the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show. My name is Jason Spies, and we are after hours here at the hotel because Dustin Goverlow of the North Dakota Watchdog Network just got done with his Renaissance meeting. And, whoo, boy, his uh, schedule's busy week. And uh, we were going to originally talk about the Greta Thunberg mural mm-hmm. that had a connection with the Renaissance board that you sit on. Yes. But we got trumped. Yeah. I mean, bergamed. Yeah. So, bergamed. Uh, Dustin Goverlow's on from the North Dakota Watchdog Network. Of course, we just interviewed him a week, week and a half ago. But with big news, big news, because at the Williston Basin Petroleum Conference this week, North Dakota governor got up on stage and addressed the crowd. And just, I mean, all I'm doing is, is reading the headline, basically, is that the state needs or must be carbon neutral by 2030. And that, of course, was kind of a bombshell. And I'll, tell, I'll talk about the mixed bag of reviews that I got in the exhibition hall and why I did not leave very much. But, uh, Dustin, how you doing? I'm doing great. Well, thanks for coming out to the hotel here and <laughs> accommodating your schedule here for the work hard portion of the morning show. By the way, we had a television meeting oh yeah things went well good so we're going to be exploring some additional opportunities which i know you will be a part of absolutely now with with zoom and everything it makes doing something like that a lot easier than it used to absolutely and it's going to be energy centric Mm -hmm. and you're you're not an energy guy you're just a i keep tabs on the legislature in north dakota specifically and subsidies and you know, give the 30-second pitch again what you guys do. Yeah, well, the North Dakota Watchdog Network uh, is a taxpayer advocacy group. We are a 501c3. We uh, uh, are, are donor-funded, privately funded, take no government money, and we keep an eye on government. Uh, we support policies that lead to less taxes, less government, less spending, and more accountability for uh, the tax dollars that are spent. And you know, I, I, I am an energy, energy guy only because I have to because that's so much of North Dakota policy. But uh, the primary focus is, is um, when it comes to this sort of thing lately, is opposing the whole corporate welfare agenda that, that permeates uh, all sides of the spectrum. Both sides say they're against it, but at the same time, both sides support the types of corporate welfare for the industries that they like. I forget. Are you political, non-political? I mean, are you a you know a, a nonprofit with a specific mission that says, "Hey, we're not political, but this is what we do." 
Yeah, yeah, we're a 501c3 tax-deductible organization recognized by the IRS, so uh, uh, we are nonpartisan, and because we're in North Dakota, uh, you know, obviously we only have Republicans to go after. And what's funny about that is back in 2012, when we, when we uh, were uh, pursuing our 501c3 status, we got lumped in with the Tea Party orgs that the Obama administration was uh, putting up walls and, and stonewalling as far as them getting their permission to operate. Uh, and uh, they forced us to send all sorts of documentation about the kinds of work that we'd done under our previous name of North Dakota Taxpayers Association. And because they thought we were just another, you know, Republican shill operation. And when we showed them that, you know, about 80 percent of material that that we put out is actually critical of Republicans, we got our 501c3 status in about two weeks after that, after waiting 14 months. Uh, So by the very fact that it's Republicans who are in charge, that's who we we are generally critical of. You know, I always like to say I I would like to go after Democrats more, but there just aren't enough of them in North Dakota to go after. Well, you wait. <laughs> apparently, some of the Republicans are turning into Democrats right before our eyes. They because are. Because I heard the term rhino again at the mm-hmm. conference. That is a Republican in name only. Correct. Okay, and then there's, what are the other splits that are going on or the factions? If you splits, I guess, would is a leading term and i'm trying to have my journalism hat on here somewhat uh what what are some of the factions besides rhino that are in the north dakota parties right now i heard a new one uh butterbean or no bastiag bastiag that's it (laughs) what what was it i don't know where but i knew it was a b i couldn't remember what it was bastiag is is a group that uh uh state rep rick becker uh created uh a few sessions ago uh, the intention was to be the more libertarian-leaning uh, wing of the Re- Republican Party. And the name comes from Fred- Frederick Bastiat, who wrote the the, the uh, book The Law, which is the whole idea of that a republic must be governed by the rule of law rather than the rule of men. And, and the idea of rule of law kind of comes from that sort of uh, era. He was a French revolutionary era writer, and and that's who uh, Rick Becker decided to uh, name his group after. And uh, It's a different name. It is. It is. And, and initially... I would have voted, I would have voted no. Um, <laughs> on the name? Well, honestly, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult name. Yeah. And it's a, it sounds, sounds foreign out of the gate. Yes, it, it does. And, and it's kind of a clicky thing. And by foreign, I don't mean like anything just unusual. That's all I mean. Just just right. to the average person around here, that's yeah. like, oh, where's that? It's, it's there's too many questions right away. So sorry, sorry, Mister Becker, but that's <laughs> I'm not to be critical on it. But it, and I think he was going for a more, much more intellectual know, approach, get and that. and that's where you know that you go with that. Otherwise, I mean, if you try to to commandeer the Reagan name then you're going to be criticized for that you know you're determining that uh he could have gone with probably goldwater because that's where he's at personally is is kind of the goldwater wing of the party but uh you know he went with this uh i mean he could have gone with hayek you know road to serfdom he could have gone with um all sorts of different uh uh, I, vote, in, in I, I vote. I vote Goldwater. Yeah, I think Goldwater would have would have gone a little bit more. Again, but I'm sure he wanted to do be new. He wanted to try, and you yeah. know what? I, I 
I didn't realize this was a uh, kind of an organized effort, but I applaud him for trying something new. I mean, you, right now we're in a time when you have to try new things because the norm is not working. Yeah, and 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 his group is nothing really new. Before it existed, when I started, it was called the Red Light District. They were the people that voted no on everything. You pushed the red light. Prior to that, you would call them the the hardliners. Uh, you know, and during the the John Dorso years, it would have been the hardliners, or maybe the Red Light District was still being used or was being used then. But there's always a faction of the Republican Party that that wants it to be more conservative. You go back even further in North Dakota history, back in the 50s, uh, 40s and 50s, when the, the NPL was still in control of the Republican Party, because North Dakota was one of the few states where the socialists took over the Republican Party in the, the 19-teens uh, and controlled the Republican Party for 30-some years. And in the 50s, you had what was called the Republican Organizing Committee, ROC, uh, pushed the NPLers out of the party, and and that's how they ended up going and taking over the Dem- Democratic Party, and and that is what cost Republicans the majority in North Dakota for another thirty some years, because the NPLers were actually the ones that controlled the state. They they didn't really care what party they were attached to, and and uh, once they moved over, the, the Democrats were in charge of North Dakota mostly until uh, Ed Schaefer came in. Ed Schaefer's dad, Mr. Bubbles. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Probably uh, him and Gary Theraldson, two of the greatest entrepreneurs in the history of North Dakota. Yeah, absolutely. As far as, you know, business-wise and everything, that, that's as far as my uh, history lesson and what I've always been taught and told when it came to business. Uh, let's uh, move into Bergam a little bit. You know, I just got done saying trying something new, good for you, and here Bergam's trying something new. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not as quick to say good for you on this one, and you're really not as quick. In fact, you're so quick to say not good for you. You sent out a bunch of, uh, or not a bunch, but you got a bunch of subscribers because my phone my phone blew up with your newsletter. So what what was in your new? I haven't read it yet. What's going on with your newsletter? Well, uh, I was just pointing out that uh, Governor Doug Burgum is playing both sides on the energy and environmental issues. On the one hand, during the session, he his lieutenant governor. His commerce commissioner all were pushing for the what I called the coal bailout agenda, uh, which mostly passed, uh, where you had a, the creation of uh, a new government agency called the Clean and Sustainable Energy Fund. It's got $25 million to start with. It's got a permanent uh, appropriation from the Legacy Fund Earnings Plus. It's got a $250 million line of credit from the Bank of North Dakota. So it is going to be a new large expansion of government, which is the kind of thing that Republicans are typically against. At least they say so. Uh, yesterday, he came out and declared that that it's his mission and his goal that the state of North Dakota be carbon neutral by 2030, uh, which is very much in line with you know the the left wing environmentalist groups. Uh, it's in line with Minnesota, which is the the cause of our our, our problems as far as exporting electricity. Uh, they don't want coal-based electricity. We've got uh, a, a, an administration in North Dakota that believes that if they can pull the carbon off of the the, the coal emissions, that somehow Minnesota is going to keep buying our power so we can keep the power plants open, even though they they say just as much they're they're against the fossil fuel side of it just as much as the carbon output side of it. So there's no guarantee that any of this is going to work, and and so we're funding 
the the agenda to prop up coal and now all of a sudden after the session is over the governor is saying oh by the way in the next decade we're going to be carbon neutral as well and so we're going to fund we're somehow going to have to fund that side of the uh the ledger is it's so taxpayers are going to be footing the bill and essentially funding both sides of this war for for 10 years and and it's it's not very practical because you, you look at how long have we been talking about the flaring problem the state hasn't been able to take that under control um it, it, the idea that somehow we're going to to completely change the economic makeup of the state in 10 years even if you had an unlimited budget which we don't uh is really unrealistic um you know it's nice to talk about but this is really a political pandering thing and, and he's been pandering to the the trump side of the aisle for the last four years and now he's going to pander to the left wing side of the aisle and and try to have it both ways and you know it takes a certain kind of politician to pull that off and it'll be interesting to see if he can do it was there anything that stood out to you as far as uh, what he said in his address that you mentioned the minnesota tie that mm-hmm. you know I, there must have been something or some either a trigger word or a trigger phrase or you know some tea leaves in there if you will uh what was it that kind of stood out to you as, okay, we better really pay attention to that? Was it the 2030? It's the 2030 thing. And the fact that we, the, the last legislative session spent so much time on figuring out how to bail out the coal industry. I mean, they're, they're exempting the coal industry from 85% of their tax uh, uh, liability for the next five years because they're not competitive. They're creating the, coal, the clean, energy, clean and sustainable energy fund so that the state can subsidize all of these CO2 projects to make coal more competitive. And so they're going in a direction of supporting the existing uh, infrastructure and the existing industry, uh, which if they now are going to put money towards actually the green side of it, which is another subsidy, the more money you subsidize the green side of the equation, it's going to even more compound the need for money on the coal side. So this is this is a a project that they're they're pursuing and uh there's no talk of about how much it's going to cost what it's actually going to look like but you know in in everything that i've seen we could easily squander the entire legacy fund and and get nowhere i was going to ask you about that if the legacy fund is going to save the day with all the same people that got us into the mess Oh, that's where the money's going to go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the legacy fund... The same the, people that have been getting it the last 10, 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of that's the same MO. I mean, I, I know I'm being cynical, but at the same time, if you touch that hot stove every time it's red, you just don't touch the stove anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah. It it, it is interesting. You know, in, in the last 10 years, since the voters approved the legacy fund... The idea of what it should be for has drastically changed. When when it was being proposed and sold to the public, we were talking about things like we're going to use it for abolishing the state income tax, abolishing uh, parts of the property tax, like the state paying 100% of education so that that's no longer on your property tax bill, uh, f- freezing 
the uh, the tuition costs for North Dakota high school graduates when they go to college so that they're not leaving college with twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of debt just from their four year degree. Those were the types of things that were being discussed for the legacy fund. It was not a, a plan to bail out the coal industry or to prop up the green industry. And apparently now uh, it's been decided that it's going to do those sorts of things, which uh, are moving targets. You know, we can't afford this arms race. The state of North Dakota can't fight bad federal policy and bad Minnesota policy. And we certainly shouldn't use taxpayer dollars or the legacy fund to do it. We should be focusing on our own uh, our own people and reducing the cost and, and burden of government for our own people instead of these pie-in-the-sky ideas. I'll tell you where he's pandering right now. I'll even tell you with the pie-in-the-sky as well as the uh, – Playing to the left because he's living in the planet of platitudes. I'll tell you why. Folks, I often refer to the planet of platitudes in the realm of reality. A lot of people that are addressing this climate change and enabling it versus earth changes. Remember, there was a thing called Pangea. We no longer have Pangea. The earth goes through changes. There are a lot of core samples that prove this. That's why. When I say enabling climate change, that's what I'm referring to. Now, getting to what I'm talking about with Doug Burgum playing both sides here, because I, I, think, I think you're right on this, and I'm going to give you my example. Very simple one. Doug Burgum said at the Williston Basin Conference, the 2021 Williston Basin Conference in Bismarck, North Dakota, here's coming from the press release. I think you got the same one for Mike mm-hmm. Nowatzki. I imagine it's Mike Nowatzki who sent it. Yeah. Uh, Former reporter for the forum. Yep. Good guy. Of the states, North Dakota, and this is quote here, of the state, North Dakota is among the best positioned to help our country and our world transition into an economically feasible way to carbon constrained future while providing reliable, resilient and affordable energy. Full of buzzwords, isn't it? Oh, boy, everybody loves hearing that. Hang on, I'm going to continue here. Burgum said, adding a longer-term goal would be to create a vision for how North Dakota could become the nation's first carbon-negative state. (laughs) Okay, right there, I'm going to stop. He's got a quote coming up next, which I haven't even read yet because I got very nauseated after that period. Because what he did there is he is acting just like the climate activist extremists. And I'm calling it out right now, okay? Because we haven't even figured out a plan to get carbon neutral by next... Century. 2050, okay? And he's already putting the seed in people's mind that we're going to be carbon neutral? Or he's, you see what I mean? Negative. No, that's what I mean. Carbon, carbon negative. Carbon negative. Thank you. I got. I got that's s- moving the goalposts even further than the than AOC moves it. That's that. That is a planet of platitude mm-hmm. pandering. Is that is yep. a, an example right there? I mean, right. I, I can't. I like I said, I get nauseated just reading it. So this is all fresh here, folks. Sound of fury. Sound and fury signifying nothing. Isn't that what Shakespeare said? This is all fresh here. So you're getting you're yeah. getting raw processed here, folks. Well, I, I was telling Dustin that I haven't even posted this on our website yet, and we post the web. We post these press releases because we're, we're not, you know, we're not here to editorialize on this stuff. This is according to the government. This is yeah. this is the official source. People need to see their own words. 
words. I mean, it, frankly, yes. frankly, that that press release says more than any of my commentary can even say. Okay, first of all, what got me irate? Let's let's back up. Okay. Adding a longer-term goal would be to create a vision for how North Dakota could become the nation's first carbon-negative state. All right, now comes the quote. We won't achieve this goal with federal mandates or state regulations. The only way we'll achieve this goal is through innovation. Wow. Okay, I don't even want to read anymore right now. The only innovation that is going to get us to carbon-negative is if cold fusion is perfected in the next... 10 to 20 years. That's the only thing. I mean, what we're finding out is Doug Burgum is going to give North Dakota his own Green New Deal, and we didn't even, did not even have to elect Democrats to do it. Burgum credited the oil and gas industry for contributing to North Dakota's growth over the last decade. Okay, never mind. We're just pandering now. He's just, it's yeah. a copy and paste session there. Okay, right. so um, I, I agree with you. I do think he's playing both sides. Okay, I think you have more than enough facts based on that press release. Mm-hmm. Whether you even attended the thing or not, based on the press release, I read half of it. More than enough evidence to say he's playing both sides. So uh, I let, will give him credit for one thing. Oh, to give him credit for a lot of things because he, he has he, done a lot of good. He, in he walked into the lion's den and he said it. I mean, this is not something he, that you would normally say at the petroleum council. This is something you'd say at some, you know. Interesting you talk you, about that, okay, because mixed bag time. I, I, I teased the mixed bag earlier, right? Well, I, when, when I, I got actually the, the text from you, mm-hmm. and then I got 15 other texts. <laughs> about it. You were the first one by a good half hour, by the way. Yeah. So I, I usually start, am. I started getting these texts coming in, and um, so I started asking people. I started asking people off the record, though. I was just, I, I didn't feel it was appropriate i maybe asked continental i can't remember i think i might have asked an you know kind of a heavyweight somebody mm-hmm. who i thought could handle it but you don't want to ask somebody it's over their head um so most of people and i'm serious most didn't even know it happened <laughs> and we were i was in the exhibit hall the whole time i didn't even leave the booth for more than 20 minutes just to go to the bathroom right we had we were like an airline hangar just coming and going, mm-hmm. coming and going with interviews. Sean Forbes and myself. Jenica Hauser was the one getting all the interviews. By the way, she got the first question with Mike Pompeo, and she asked him about climate tax. Mm-hmm. So proud of her for doing that because possibly the biggest tax on the planet is about to happen, and no one is having the discussion. Not even for it, against it. It's just like it's happening and they're just giving us kind of the fate of complete, I think it's called. The Here we go. Here's your memo. Here's how it's going to go. So anyways, we'll get back and, to and that. And that is because the industry itself has decided in the last 10 years that they want something like that. They want a carbon tax system. 10 years ago, so many of us fought against the, the cap and trade proposal under Obama. That included industry. Now, all of a sudden, industry has found out that, hey, if we do this our way, we can make the accounting work. And so now they're supporting it. Like things are flipping. This is, this is part of the realignment of the political system. Big business is not in the pocket of Republicans anymore. And, and, and the Republicans ha- don't even realize that it's happening. So I'm going to cap and trade, okay? Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to go next. You brought that up, and my point was well gone a while ago. So I grew up in agriculture, so I heard at dinner and saw before my eyes and listened to the aunts and uncles at, at Thanksgiving talk about how the grocery store replaced the farmer. 
And then I worked in the media. And actually, I, I went through four recessions, survived three. <laughs> this last one I survived in 2015, 2001, two, three, that recession. And 2009, nope, lost my business. So, but that's the one that took out the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was more specifically towards the newspaper industry. And we also had a real estate publication. So we got double whammied. Okay. Now, what I learned though was the government bailed out the big guys. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what I learned is that, you know, if, if you were NBC and RCA, all these big guys, you know, you got bailed out. Well, the cable companies had to rely on their own money and their own innovation. And they won, okay? And then the next go-around, same thing kind of happened where the big guys got bailed out and uh, you had to use your own innovation and your own money. Well, this go-around is a little different. This one is almost like the internet took out the newspaper industry. You know, I mean, look, look at after they came out, about 10 years later, you had a, just almost every daily declaring bankruptcy or going down to a few days a week. So paradigm shift, paradigm shift, paradigm shift, right? The grocery store took out the farmer. The internet took out the newspaper. And now the light switch is taking out the energy worker, primarily the oil, gas, and coal worker, okay? Mm-hmm. And it re- reminds me that you used to uh, do cap-and-trade stuff. Yeah, that, is that where you got, isn't that where you got your start? Because I think that's where you and I met as you were stumping for... Against cap and trade or educating or doing some awareness? What's that uh, history? Well, well, before that, I was the point person in North Dakota against Obamacare for the U.S. Chamber. When I was running the North Dakota Taxpayers Association, uh, the U.S. Chamber approached me about being part of their campaign against Obamacare. And, 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 oh, that's right. And then that, after Obamacare, rolled into the cap and trade campaign. And, and everybody, all the Republicans, conservatives, industry, everybody was against cap and trade. We killed that thing quickly. That fight lasted six months, and they gave up. So what, what, just a very brief version. What is cap and trade? Cap and trade was the idea that we're going to create some imaginary derivatives on some market that that people who are in the business of reducing carbon can sell to people and companies that are in the business of creating carbon. It's kind of like the cafe credits for automobiles where uh, – you know, the the the, uh, the example in North Dakota, when I was in college, I worked at the, the Global Electric Motor Car Company. They built the, the little glorified golf carts, $10,000, $15,000 golf carts. They created them, and it was bought by Chrysler at the time. It's passed through several hands since then. But Chrysler bought it so that they could get tax credits because they were electric cars, little tiny things, not like we have now. Uh, and, and for every electric car that they made they got credit towards building their v10 hemi dodge dodge ram that got seven miles a gallon and and in order to be able to make those pickups they had to make x number of these cars it didn't even matter if the car sold it was all about creating it and having it available that got you the credit uh are you telling me that that gem car guy in fargo is he was getting subsidized to build those things. He wasn't getting subsidized that I know of, or but, forced. But but he was in actuality he was subsidizing Chrysler. No, that's what I'm saying. But yeah. but Chrysler was getting forced to. Oh yeah, yeah. To but, buy from but 
Okay. Because the, the cafe standards were all based on these the same sort of credits. And, and so the, the cap and trade deal. No, was, I didn't realize that. I actually thought there was a legitimate market for those golf carts. They were just like a turbo tur, tur, turbo uh, rough golf cart, basically. Yeah. A yeah. little, little bit thicker of a golf cart is yeah. what it was. Yeah. I, I worked in 2002, late 2002. I worked on the assembly line, actually putting them together for about three yeah, months. Yeah, it wasn't a bad idea for people who just wanted to drive to the market and back yeah. and, and work. It was it was meant for, you know, 10, retirement 15 miles communities. a day. The, the idea yeah. was you'd have gated retirement communities where you would park your regular car in the community garage. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then you'd have these in the inside so mm-hmm. nobody's getting run over. There's nobody driving fast. Oh, you save a small fortune on roads. Yeah. 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 You, you can build sidewalks instead of roads, right. basically. All kinds of great things. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so yeah, the, the, there was it. It was a a good niche idea, from from the in, from their innovation standpoint. From a business standpoint, Chrysler was using them for those credits to make the inefficient vehicles on the other side. Totally get it. My my point was is I didn't realize it was an inflated marketplace. Mm-hmm. Okay, I wish they would have taught me that <laughs> when I was going to NDSU. Yeah, because. That is an inflated marketplace where if I actually think that marketplace is real and invest my life savings into it back then, well, I would have been bankrupt five times over. What's the gem cars doing now? I believe, last I heard, it was owned by Polaris. I don't even know where they stand now. If, they, if they're building them, I don't think that... They're not Tesla. I, they're not they're, Tesla. They're not competitive at all. No. But they, they, they've been getting, what, business for how long through forced government regulations and yeah, subsidies? Yeah, and, and it's just like you look at the wind towers. For so long, it, you know, the production tax credit on the wind towers was basically 50% of what it costs to put the thing up. So even if, if it costs you a million dollars to put it up, you're getting half of that back in tax credit on your other things that were making you profit. So your actual profit was not the wind itself. It was the credit. Now they built so many of those that now they've got the critical mass where wind is, I think the last number was 26, 28% of the total output in the nation. Uh, and North Dakota is in the higher end of that spectrum for, for percentage of electricity. And so they actually priced themselves out of the, the, the coal market by, by building these things. The utilities took advantage of of the tax credit system and by building the wind towers and taking that tax credit they've actually made their own coal powered fire coal fired power plants obsolete because of their own tax manipulation system hmm. and so that's why north dakota is where it is now because these companies made business decisions based off a of tax policy that was not good tax policy and and that doesn't even bring in the factor that outright subsidies for these things that was on top of the credits so you've got all these policies that were were designed to make coal and to make oil and any carbon related uh energy obsolete by design and now north dakota is having to play this catch-up game because we don't want to lose those jobs we don't want to lose the economic activity and so we're, we're going to prop that up, and we're going to do the green thing at the same time. I mean, it, we don't have enough money in this state. The oil industry cannot create enough money for the government to spend to make this happen. Now, you get press releases from the governor, right? Yeah. Okay. I do, too. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get the press release that they 
hired the ESG consulting firm or got the study back or because didn't they just pass something in the legislature that they were going to divest themselves from ESG and then the governor vetoed it and said kick it back and we got to do a study. What was that? Just uh, the, just the, the shortened version the, of that. The, they originally the legislature and certain legislators uh, wanted to divest the state from any fund that prioritized ESG and locked out uh, traditional energy sources. Uh, the, the The legislature itself said, "No, we're not going to do that because if we do that, our pension funds and our investment funds are co- going to collapse because there's going to be nothing left to invest in." Uh, the legislature uh, rolled it down to a study, uh, and 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 that's going to happen in the interim. The problem with this whole so thing, the study hasn't been done yet. It hasn't been done yet. Okay, okay, let's just stop. But they, there. the legislature, is specifically the Senate Energy Committee, wanted to get the state of North Dakota out of investing into any fund or any company that prioritizes high ESG. Uh, scores in their investment model. That's everybody. All the investment firms are doing that. If they did that, there'd be nothing for the state to put their money in. There'd, there would be no earnings on the legacy fund. There'd be no earnings to speak of on the pension fund because bonds pay no, 0.2%. It's, it's, it's an example of, you know, ten, 10 years ago, five years ago, it would have mattered. Now it's a reaction. Yeah. It's a reaction to something to the tune to where, okay, what, what, okay so it passed the House and it passed the Senate. And then it's in Bergham's office. Did he veto it? Was that no, what he did? no? Or I don't think he vetoed did he kick it. Kick it back or no, whatever it was. No, it, it it's. I think it's it's going to be a study. And and no, it, no, no. Yeah. It ended up being a study. Yeah, but that's not how it started. Right, right. The Senate wanted it to be a study, and the the in the House they they converted it to a to a no. In the Senate they wanted to actually make it policy, and then the House they converted it to a study. And I the see. conference committee agreed. We'll study it. Basically, the, the the experts in the investment office that runs the pension fund said we can't do this. Okay, I'll because th- of the things that I yeah, just yeah. No, I'll, I'll go back and look at the press release I got. I'm just I'm going off memory, and it's after hours here. Yeah, but and, but and, and what, neither what, one you, of us even have a wine or a beer or anything. We've got coffee and water here at the hotel room. So and, and what you're getting at is that the legislature wants to get away from the ESG stuff, and the governor is now stating that we're going full bore into well, it. Well, this is where I'm going with it is that. Um, my understanding is some sort of legislation passed that said we're going to do a study. Mm-hmm. It started out that we're going to go away from it completely, and through calmer waters, it said no, we're going to at least do a study or mm-hmm. kick the can, whatever you yeah. want to say. Well, a month later, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So the study's done. This no, is a, that- this is an extremely aggressive statement to make mm-hmm. when you just said we're going to do a study. Am I out of line for putting no, those dots no, the, together the, there? The study has not been done. It hasn't even been assigned yet. It's still in the it, the legislature just left. They haven't even done their their interim assignment uh, process yet. I mean, don't don't get me started on how offended I am that they've been blowing me off on ESG for three years, and all I've been trying to do is educate them on what's coming. Yeah, and they've been blowing me off. Yeah, the the legislature. I I mean. Legislators that were wanting to get out of this are going to be pissed. One of the guys that was blowing me off was trying to charm himself into being an ESG expert now in this little conference. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, now he's going to educate me. Okay, great. 
Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's an expert. I mean, it, I didn't know much about ESG until January this year, and I, I, I started doing digging in and found out the funds generally outperform the market by a couple percent, which matters. So ESG is is something that if it the horse is already out of the barn, and is and if oil and gas doesn't grab the narrative right now, they're screwed. I really believe that because this thing could go bonkers mm-hmm. now. There's some there's some post traumatic stress disorder the oil and gas industry has because I, I this is my new example it's like you've worked in the service industry mm-hmm. restaurants right so you know they, they tell you you can have a perfect meal ten times and then that tenth time that person might tell one or two people right mm-hmm. you have one bad meal out of a hundred. And that person's going to go tell three or ten, and then it's going to spiral yeah. and spiral and spiral. Yeah. I think that's a little bit about the uh, PR with oil and gas, especially after Colorado, New York, and California, where I my contention is a lot of what oil and gas has done has been actually helping the planet survive, mm-hmm. helping humans survive on the planet. The planet ain't going anywhere. We right. are, right? Yeah. So for me... I think, actually, if they told their story more, that would satisfy the ESG stuff, and they'd be ahead of it. Right. But the transparency part, I think, is difficult them. Is di- <laughs> the transparency part is difficult for them to do. Mm-hmm. I think the social part is difficult for them to understand. Yeah. Ironically, I think they got the environmental thing down pretty good, to be honest. I mean, they've, they, they continually make things better and better. Listen, again, I come from ag, GMOs, pesticides. We got all kinds of problems over there. But at the end of the day, people want to eat. Yeah. And at the end of the day, people want to turn their light switch on. And so if you're doing a balance sheet, it's not even close in my mind compared to a lot of the other stuff. So anyway, that's where I'm coming from when, when we have a lot of this, but I'll just hand it off to you and you can comment or the, the, the industry, the oil industry, coal industry, every industry has a problem and is bad at being proactive about doing things until they're forced to do it or bribed to do it. You know, either the, the government regulates them into doing what they probably knew they should have done to begin with or the government subsidizes them into it by and that's a bribery um industry needs to learn how to do its own thing and figure out how to make the the economics work without the government either forcing them or bribing them sorry the frackleberry hound is really getting on me there (laughs) it gets a little distracting so i apologize lay down lay down Go remediate. Go remediate. Go recycle. Teaching her recycling. She goes out in the water and grabs trash and comes back. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's our mascot. Frackleberry Hound's our mascot. She travels with me. Everything. So, uh, so actually, so a couple examples of ESG that we were showing at the trade show was we have these business cards that are embedded with wildflower seeds. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a copy of one here. I'll, I'll just give one to you and you can plant it. But what we're telling people is that this is an example of ESG. You still can use your business card, but look at there's seeds in there. So when it gets thrown away as litter, it doesn't have that glossy, you know, bad for the environment, matte blah, gloss or whatever the heck's yeah. on there that they complain about. No, this actually grows seeds, you know. And guess what? You can't do it without industry. Right. You can't put those seeds in there, make that card without industry. So it just solved that problem. The other one I was talking about was the industrial forest that we're doing. 
50% of the trees planted in the United States in the last 20 years by government and by nonprofits have died in the first year. They don't water them. They take the Instagram photo and move on. Mm -hmm. Industry can solve that problem, too. We build a sustainability shed. We build a critical pipeline system. We make sure those trees get water every day for three years, once a week for uh, two years after that. And then they're consuming carbon all the time. And I'm going to mention this right now. Folks, we have got to pull back on making carbon the boogeyman. My goodness, these kids are going to be afraid of the building block of life known as carbon. We have to figure. I mean, I'm. T- do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? This is getting yeah. out of hand. Yeah, it, it, it's it's been uh, marketed. You know, when when I was a kid growing up, you know, I, I was in the generation that grew up on Weekly Reader and Captain Planet, and and that's where a lot of this started. Uh, as far as is trying to convince everybody, you know, when, when I was in kindergarten or so in 1988, uh, it was the ozone la- layer. There's always a boogeyman and it's always a moving goalpost. And now it's carbon's bad. Never mind that that's how trees breathe and, and all these sorts of things. I mean, the, the industry really could, because it's got all this infrastructure for water for itself, for fracking, could dual purpose that to water the trees and build forests. I mean, the joke that that I was making this session, um, I was only half joking. If we're going to spend or $500 million uh, to, to uh, address the carbon issue uh, and, and sequester carbon, you know, maybe we should just terraform North Dakota and make it a forested state. You know, it, it would be a lot more effective. Well, maybe that's the plan. They're going to turn New York and New Hampshire into solar panels. <laughs> yeah, we can, right? we can turn North Dakota. We can get some trees finally, and people can stop complaining that we don't have any trees. Well, the industrial forest is going to build a tree uh, forest right here in Bismarck, North Dakota. Mayor Bakken was at our booth, and we had a couple meetings with him today as well for the industrial forest. And great, great uh, response. People really like the idea, uh, the sustainable Forests, you know, and, and the other thing too, which is, and I've got these water bottles with logos on them. Mm-hmm. That's going to bite them. <laughs> That's going to bite them. Well, you, you're a shoestring kind of a company. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you have good years and bad years, but you've shoestringed like I have many years. You know what Google free images are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know what free downloads you can do. You also know what gets you sued. Right. You know what I mean? So I, that, I, I'm worried that some of these, uh, um, what do we want? I don't know, guerrilla journalists? I don't even know what they're called online anymore. Troll journalists? <laughs> I mean, because their intention is to say F you. Right. <laughs> so it's not to help anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all are like that, but I suppose it's just the modern version of whatever uh, National Enquirer would be, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was bloggers, and, and then you, you've got the whole industry of, of the political organizations who, who created their own journalists. I mean, I, I say that my job is half journalism, half lobbying, you know, and I, I try to balance it. I, my, my goal is to establish the facts so that whoever I'm talking to, there's no disagreement on what the facts are. Then, we'll, then I will tell you what I think we should do about it. 
we're not going to always agree on where to go, but we need to agree on the facts. And, and we now in America, the biggest problem is that people can't agree on what the facts are because they can't trust either the mainstream media or the, the specialized media that, that are bought and paid for by one special interest or another. So we're going to have to have you back because I want to uh, find out about that Greta Thunberg mural that is in Fargo, North Dakota. I don't know. It's like 50 feet tall or... 75 feet tall or three. I don't think it's that big, but. I know, but every yeah. time I talk, every time I say it, it grows. The fish story yeah, grows, just, yeah. Exactly. By the end of it, it's it's four miles tall. Because, <laughs> and you can see it from, never mind. You can um, see it from the moon. But it's it's interesting, <laughs> uh, just kind of some of the off-the-air conversation we had about how that ended up in Fargo. So it's a little bit of a tease, folks, that we're going to have Dustin back to talk about how the Greta Thunberg mural went from Bismarck, North Dakota to Fargo through a artist and Greta's never set foot in Fargo so it's interesting that you know that's where it ended up yeah but uh, anyway we'll talk about that for another day but just kind of wrapping up here in uh, kind of the last day of the Williston Basin Petroleum Conference and uh, I don't did you catch anything else any any other uh, uh, news or any nuggets of information any texts or anything that stood out I mean uh we were asking people about climate tax. Did you uh, have you seen anything from anybody on climate tax lately? Not specifically. I have noticed, like I said, that industry people are now have gone from being opposed to cap and trade to being for some sort of a carbon tax system, some sort of carbon trade market, stock market, cryptocurrency, something where they can profit off of it. Mm-hmm. They, they they complain that there's no value in the carbon yet. And the one thing in all of this discussion about sequestration is how much energy is it going to take to sequester the carbon? And where is that going to come from? Do we have the ability? I mean, it's going to you have to compress it. And I don't even know how they're going to do it, but it's going to take a certain number, a level of energy to do that. Are we going to be running these power plants to to power the entity that compresses and confines the carbon so it's kind of like a perpetual motion machine i'm pretty sure the state's going to spend a lot of money with the same people trying to figure right. out how right right and and it, probably it, funnel it through university right yeah i mean and, and and as long as it's not their money they will spend it and and that's where we come back to the issue of this is not about one industry or another being good or bad this is about the taxpayers and the public and should we as taxpayers be paying for either side to do their business that's going to pro- they're going to profit from and we're going to pay the bill that's the problem we should we should be against socialism for everybody well it's a good spot to end it right there so better give yourself a plug how people can support your cause and uh everything we're we're actually we're adding you to our sponsors because you do such good work for us that that way there's some links on the website now so if somebody wants to donate some money to uh dustin's cause they can certainly access his website through our sponsorship page but what is it give it out to the public it is watching uh we're, we're rehabbing it but uh, you can cl- click there and uh uh, sign up for our newsletter. Sign up to donate some cash. Help us keep going. Uh, it's tax deductible. You know everybody likes to get uh, a tax deduction. So if you're worried about your government, uh, we're the guys in North Dakota to uh, to help uh, keep an eye on it for you. Exclusive interview, industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com. Well, you
music heard on the Crude Life Morning Show, Play Hard, Work Hard, is by the Moody River Band. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life, Play Hard, Work Hard, is sponsored in part by Great American Mining monetizes wasted, stranded, and undervalued gas throughout the oil and gas industry by using it as a power generation source for Bitcoin mining. Great American Mining Company brings the market and their expertise to the molecule. Their solutions make producers more efficient and profitable while helping reduce flaring and venting throughout the oil and gas value chain. And if you're a mineral owner, check out how much Bitcoin you could be making right now with your valued gas. Go to GAM.AI. That's Great American Mining, GAM.AI. The Crude Life with host Jason Speece. My name is Jason Speece, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with Lynn Helms, the director for the North Dakota Mineral Resources. And today's interview is conducted by Crude Life content correspondent Jenica Hauser. And all of that because of people investing in oil and gas and moving to North Dakota to make that happen. So then 2020 happened, and uh, everything came to a screeching halt over a very short period of time. And uh, so we partnered, uh, using CARES Act money, partnered with the industry to keep a core group of of people employed and uh, working through the last six months of 2020 until things could begin to recover. And now they have. So we talked about the fact that we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, We're back to 18 drilling rigs. We have nine frack crews running. Uh, That's not nearly enough. Uh, Companies are getting back on their feet in terms of profit and producing capital. And just visiting and networking with folks here at the conference, finding out that our oil and gas operators are making big plans to go back to investing next year. So we think that we're going to get really back in business next year and that we can have another decade of phenomenal growth. To listen to the full-length interview with Lynn Helms, Director for the North Dakota Mineral Resources, or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life promotes a culture of inclusion and respect through interviews, content creation, live events, partnerships that educate, enrich, and empower people to create a positive social environment for all, regardless of age, race, religion, sexual orientation, physical, or intellectual ability. Everyday energy for everyday people. For more, visit thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spees, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spees with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? 
Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out the industrial forest. Forest.com. That's the industrialforest.com. We're going to do a good old fashioned Bakken barbecue. Halliburton has been cooking for two days. Uh, they've cooked 2,500 pounds of pork, 800 pounds of sausage, uh, 500 pounds of chicken. So, they say banging and the vocals are up. Brother, it ain't country, no. Everyone's favorite are the fish tacos, but they've got burgers, steaks, salads, I mean, pretty much everything. first experience was, oh, where are all the rigs? Because you have so much country here. In a car, they're in a tent, they're in some other building that's not meant for human habitation. We've actually found people living in haystacks, in uh, grain bins. We found one guy that basically gets shelter in a culvert each night. This was one of those stories where one reporter can't cover. There's too much happening at one time in too many places. If you hear it and it ain't stuck in your head all day, it's got a pop back beat and it's sung the wrong way. If you're not making money in the Bakken, you just truly are not thinking hard enough. Brother, it ain't country, no. Looking for a helping hand? Look at the end of your doggone arm. North Dakotans aren't looking over their shoulder for the government to help them. Some Trailers, trucks, or prison, man, it ain't a country song. As long as I'm working, my mom and dad are happy. Okay. <laughs> and a shower. Well, that was always a key, especially going to Thunder Bay. And he doesn't like life, I guess. It starts rocking. Insanity, right? North Dakota, the Bakken Plague. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com.